Section 1 of The Black Prophet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. The Black Prophet by William Carleton. Section 1. A Tale of Irish Famine. Chapter 1. Glendhue or the Black Glen, scene of domestic affection. Some twenty and odd years ago there stood a little cabin at the foot of a round hill that very much resembled a cupola in shape, and which, from its position and height, commanded a prospect of singular beauty. This hill was one of a range that ran from north to south-west, but in consequence of its standing, as it were, somewhat out of the rank its whole appearance and character as a distinct feature of the country were invested with considerable interest to a scientific eye especially to that of a geologist an intersection or abrupt glen divided it from those which constituted the range or group alluded to through this as a pass in the country and the only one for miles wound a road into an open district on the western side which road about half a mile after its entering the glen was met by a rapid torrent that came down from the gloomy mountains that rose to the left the foot of this hill which on the southern side was green and fertile to the top stretched off and was lost in the rich land that formed the great and magnificent valley it helped to bound, and to which the chasm we have described was but an entrance. The one bearing to the other, in size and position, much the same relation that a small by-lane in a country town bears to the great leading street, which constitutes its principal feature. Noon had long passed, and the dim sun of a wet autumnal day was sloping down towards the west through clouds and gloom when a young girl of about twenty-one or twenty-two years of age came out of the cabin we have mentioned and running up to the top of a little miniature hill or knob that rose beside it looked round in every direction as if anxious to catch a glimpse of someone whom she expected it appeared however that she watched in vain for after having examined the country in every direction with an eye in which might be read a combined expression of eagerness anger and disappointment she once more returned to the cabin with a slow and meditating step this she continued to do from time to time for about an hour and a half when at length a female appeared approaching whom she at once recognized the situation of this hovel for such in fact it must be termed was not only strikingly desolate but connected also with wild and supernatural terrors from the position of the glen itself a little within which it stood it enjoyed only a very limited portion of the sun's cheering beams as the glen was deep and precipitous so was the morning light excluded from it by the northeastern hills as was that of evening by those which rose between it and the west indeed it would be difficult to find a spot marked by a character of such utter solitude and gloom naturally barren it bore not a single shrub on which a bird could sit or a beast browse and little of course was to be seen in it but the bare gigantic projections of rock which shot out of its steep sides in wild and uncouth shapes or the grey rugged expanses of which it was principally composed indeed we feel it difficult to say whether the gloom of winter or the summer's heat fell upon it with an air of lonelier desolation it mattered not what change of season came the place presented no appearance of man or his works neither bird nor beast were seen or heard except rarely 
within its dreary bosom, the only sounds it knew being the monotonous murmurs of the mountain torrent, or the wild echoes of the thunderstorms that pealed among the hills about it. Silence and solitude were the characteristics which predominated in it, and it would not be easy to say whether they were felt more during the gloom of November or the glare of June. In the mouth of this glen, not far from the cabin we have described, two murders had been committed about twenty years before the period of our narrative, within the lapse of a month. The one was that of a carman, and the other of a man named Sullivan, who also had been robbed, as it was supposed the carman had been, for the bodies of both had been made away with and were never found. This was evident, in the one case, by the horse and cart of the carman remaining by the grey stone in question, on which the traces of blood were long visible, and in the other by the circumstance of Sullivan's hat and part of his coat having been found near the cabin in question on the following day, in a field through which his path home lay, and in which was a pool of blood, where his footmarks were deeply imprinted, as if in a struggle for life and death. For this latter murder, a man named Dalton had been taken up, under circumstances of great suspicion, he having been the last person seen in the man's company. Both had been drinking together in the market. A quarrel had originated between them about money matters. Blows had been exchanged, and Dalton was heard to threaten him in very strong language. Nor was this all. He had been observed following, or rather dogging him, on his way home and although the same road certainly led to the residence of both, yet when his words and manner were taken into consideration, added to the more positive proof that the footmarks left on the place of struggle exactly corresponded with his shoes, there could be little doubt that he was privy to Sullivan's murder and disappearance, as well, probably, as to his robbery. At all events, the glen was said to be haunted by Sullivan's spirit, which was in the habit, according to report, of appearing near the place of murder, from whence he was seen to enter his chasm, a circumstance which, when taken in connection with its dark and lonely aspect, was calculated to impress upon the place the reputation of being accursed as the scene of crime and supernatural appearances. We remember having played in it when young, and the feeling we experienced was one of awe and terror, to which might be added, on contemplating the dread repose and solitude around us, an impression that we were removed hundreds of miles from the busy ongoings and noisy tumults of life, to which, as if seeking protection, we generally hastened with a strong sense of relief, after having tremblingly gratified our boyish curiosity. The young girl in question gave the female she had been expecting anything but a cordial or dutiful reception. In personal appearance there was not a point of resemblance between them, although the tout ensemble of each was singularly striking and remarkable. The girl's locks were black as the raven's wing. Her figure was tall and slender, but elastic and full of symmetry. The ivory itself was not more white nor glossy than her skin. Her teeth were bright and beautiful, and her mouth a perfect rosebud. It is unnecessary to say that her eyes were black and brilliant for such ever belong to her complexion and temperament, but it is necessary to add that they were piercing and unsettled, and you felt that they looked into you rather than at you or upon you. In fact, her features were all perfect, yet it often happened that their general expression was 
productive of no agreeable feeling on the beholder. Sometimes her smile was sweet as that of an angel, but let a single impulse or whim be checked, and her face assumed a character of malignity that made her beauty appear like that which we dream of in an evil spirit. The other woman, who stood to her in the relation of stepmother, was above the middle size. Her hair was sandy, or approaching to a pale red. Her features were coarse but regular, and her whole figure that of a well-made and powerful woman. In her countenance might be read a peculiar blending of sternness and benignity, each evidently softened down by an expression of melancholy, perhaps of suffering, as if some secret care lay brooding at her heart. The inside of the hovel itself had every mark of poverty and destitution about it. Two or three stools, a pot or two, one miserable standing bed, and a smaller one gathered up under a rug in the corner, were almost all that met the eye on entering it. And simple as these meagre portions of furniture were, they bore no marks of cleanliness or care. On the contrary, everything appeared to be neglected, squalid, and filthy, such precisely as led one to see at a glance that the inmates of this miserable hut were contented with their wretched state of life and had no notion whatsoever that any moral or domestic duty existed by which they might be taught useful notions of personal comfort and self-respect. So, said the young woman, addressing her stepmother as she entered, you're come back at last, and a pretty time you took to stay away. Well, replied the other calmly, I'm here now at any rate but I see you're in one of your tantrums. Sally, my lady, what's wrong, I say? In the meantime, don't look as if you'd ate us without salt. And a bitter morsel you'd be, replied the younger, with a flashing glance, devil a more so. Here am I, sitting or running out and in these two hours, where I ought to be at the dance in Kilnyashag before I go to Barney Gormley's wake for I promised to be at both. Why didn't you come home in time? Because, Achra, it wasn't agreeable to me to do so. I'm beginning to got old and stiff, and it's time for me to take care of myself. Stiffer may you be then soon, and older may you never be, and that's the best I wish you. Aren't you afeard to talk to me in that way? said the elder of the two. No, not a bit. You won't flake me now as you used to do. I am able and willing to give blow for blow at last, thank goodness, and will too if you ever try that trick. The old woman gazed at her angrily, and appeared for a moment to meditate an assault. After a pause, however, during which the brief but vehement expression of rising fury passed from her countenance, and her face assumed an expression more of compassion than of anger, she simply said, in a calm tone of voice. I don't know that I ought to blame you so much for your temper, Sarah. The darkness of your father's soul is upon yours. His wicked spirit is in you, and may heaven above grant that you'll never carry about with you through this unhappy life the black and heavy burden that weighs down his heart. If God hasn't said it, you have his course or something nearly as bad before you. Oh, go to the wake as soon as you like, and to the dance, too. Find someone that'll take you off my hands, that'll put a house over your head, give you a bit to eat, and a rag to put on you, and may God pity him that's doomed to get you. If the woeful state of the country, and the hunger and sickness that's abroad, and that's coming harder and faster on us every day, can't tame you or keep you down, I don't know what will. I'm sure the black and terrible summer we've had ought to make you think of how we'll get over all that's before us. God pity you, I say again, and whatever poor man is to be cursed with you. Keep your pity for them that wants it, 
replied the other, and that's not me. As for God's pity, it isn't yours to give, and even if it was, you stand in need of it yourself more than I do. You're beginning to preach to me now that you're not able to bait us, but from your preachments and your baitings may the devil pay you for all alike, as he will, and that's my prayer. A momentary gush of the stepmother's habitual passion overcame her. She darted at her stepdaughter, who sprung to her limbs and flew at her in return. The conflict at first was brief, for the powerful strength of the elder female soon told. Sarah, however, quickly disengaged herself, and seizing an old knife which lay on a shell that served as a dresser, she made a stab at the very heart of her stepmother, panting as she did it with an exalting vehemence of vengeance that resembled the growlings which a savage beast makes when springing on its prey. Ah, she exclaimed, you have it now, you have it. Call on God's pity now, for you'll soon want it. Ha, ha. The knife, however, owing to the thick layers of cloth with which the dress of the other was patched, as well as to the weakness of the thin and worn blade, did not penetrate her clothes, nor render her any injury whatsoever. The contest was again resumed. Sarah, perceiving that she had missed her aim, once more put herself into a posture to renew the deadly attempt, and the consequence was that a struggle now took place between them which might almost be termed one for life and death. It was indeed a frightful and unnatural struggle. The old woman, whose object was, if possible, to disarm her antagonist, found all her strength, and it was great, scarcely a match for the murderous ferocity which was now awakened in her. The grapple between them consequently became furious, and such was the terrible impress of diabolical malignity which passion stamped upon the features of this young tigress that her stepmother's heart for a moment quailed on beholding it, especially when associated with the surprising activity and strength which she put forth. Her dark and finely penciled eyebrows were fiercely knit, as it were, into one dark line. Her lips were drawn back, displaying her beautiful teeth, that were now ground together in what resembled the lock of death. Her face was pale, with overwrought with resentment, and her deep-set eyes glowed with a wild and flashing fire that was fearful, while her lips were encircled with the white foam of revengeful and deadly determination. And what added most to the terrible expression on her whole face was the exulting smile of cruelty which shed its baleful light over it, resolving the whole contest, as it were, and its object, the murder of her stepmother, into the fierce play of some beautiful vampire that was ravening for the blood of its awakened victim. After a struggle of some two or three minutes, the strength and coolness of the stepmother at length prevailed. She wrested the knife out of Sarah's hand, and almost at the same moment stumbled and fell. The other, however, was far from relaxing her hold. On the contrary, she clung to her fiercely, shouting out, I won't give you up yet. I love you too well for that. No, no, it's fond of you I'm getting. I'll hug you, mother dear. I will I, and kiss you too, and leave your mark behind me. And as she spoke, her stepmother felt her face coming in savage proximity to her own. If you don't keep away, Sarah, said the other, I'll stab you. What do you mean, you bloody devil? It is going to tear my flesh with your teeth, are you? Hold off, or as heavens above us, I'll stab you with the knife. You can't, shouted the other. The knife's bent, or you'd be done for before this. I'll taste your blood for all that. And as the words were uttered, the stepmother gave a sudden scream, making at the same time a violent effort to disentangle herself, which she did. Sarah started to her feet, 
and flying towards the door exclaimed with shouts of wild triumphant laughter ha 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 do you feel anything i was near having the best part of one of your ears ha 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 but unfortunately i missed it and now look to yourself your day is gone and mine is come i've tasted your blood and i like it ha 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 and if as you say it's kind father for me to be fond of blood i say you had better take care of yourself and i tell you more we'll take care of your fair-haired beauty for you my father and myself will and i'm told to act against her as i will too and you'll see what will bring your pet gra gra sullivan to yet that's news for you she then went down to the river which flowed past in whose yellow and turbid waters for it was now swollen with rain she washed the blood from her hands and face with an apparently light heart having meditated for some time she fell a laughing at the fierce conflict that had just taken place exclaiming to herself ha 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 well now if i had killed her got the old knife into her heart i might lave the country if i had killed her now troth it had been a good joke and all in a fit of passion because she didn't come home in time to let me meet him well i'll go back and speak soft to her for after all she'll give me a hard life of it she returned and having entered the hut perceived that the ear and cheek of her stepmother were still bleeding i'm sorry for what i did she said with the utmost frankness and good nature forgive me mother you know i'm a hasty devil for a devil's limb i am no doubt of it forgive me i say do now here i'll get something to stop the blood she sprang at the moment with the agility of a wild cat upon an old chest that stood in the corner of the hut exhibiting as she did it a leg and foot of surpassing symmetry and beauty by stretching herself up to her full length she succeeded in pulling down several old cobwebs that had been for years in the corner of the wall and in the act of doing so disturbed some metallic substance which fell first upon the chest from which it tumbled off to the ground where it made two or three narrowing circles and then lay at rest murder alive mother she exclaimed what is this hello a tobacco box a fine round tobacco box of iron bedad and what's this on it let me see two leathers wait i'll rub the rust off or stay the rust shows them as well let me see p and what's the other i and m p m ara what can that be for well devil make care let it lie on the shelf there here now none of your cross looks i say put these cobwebs to your face and they'll stop the bleeding ha 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 well ha 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 but you are a sight to fall in love with this minute she exclaimed laughing heartily at the blood-stained visage of the other you won't speak i see devil may care then if you don't you'll do the other thing let it alone but at any rate there's the cobwebs for you if you liked to put them on and so benathlet and let that be a warning to you not to raise your hand to me again a sailor courted a farmer's daughter that lived contagious to the isle of man and so on she then directed her steps to the dance at kilnagashog where one could actually suppose if mirth laughter and extraordinary buoyancy of spirits could be depended on that she was gifted in addition to her remarkable beauty with the innocent and delightful disposition of an angel the stepmother having dressed the wound as well as she could sat down by the fire and began to ruminate on the violent contest which had just taken place and in which she had borne such an unfortunate part this was the first open and determined act of personal resistance which she had ever until that moment experienced at her stepdaughter's hands 
but now she feared that if they were to live as heretofore under the same roof their life would be one of perpetual strife perhaps of ultimate bloodshed and that these domestic brawls might unhappily terminate in the death of either she felt that her own temper was none of the best and yet that so long as she was incapable of restraining it or maintaining her coolness under the provocations to which the violent passions of sarah would necessarily expose her so long must such conflicts as that which had just occurred take place between them she began now to fear sarah with whose remorseless disposition she was too well acquainted and came to the natural conclusion that a residence under the same roof was by no means compatible with her own safety she has been a curse to me she went on unconsciously speaking aloud for when she wasn't able to bait me herself her father did it for her the devil is said to be fond of his own and so does he dote on her because she's his image in everything that's bad a hard life i'll lead between them from this out especially now that she's got the upper hand of me yet what else can i expect or deserve this load that is on my conscience is worse night and day i am suffering in the sight of god and acting as if i wasn't to be brought in judgment afore him what am i to do i wish i was in my grave but then again how am i to face death and that same's not the worst for after death comes judgment may the lord prepare me for it and guide and direct me how to act one thing i know must be done either she or i will live in this house for live under the same roof with her i will not she then rose up looked out of the door a moment and resuming her seat went on with her soliloquy no he said it was likely he wouldn't be home to-night wasn't he gets upon his old prophecies he doesn't care how long he stays away and why he can take the delight he does in prophesying and foretelling good or evil according as it serves his purpose i'm sure i don't know especially when he only laughs in his sleeve at the people for believing him but what's that about poor gragal sullivan she threatened her and spoke of her father too as being in it ah ah i must watch him there and you too my lady divil for it'll go hard with me if either of you injure a hair of her head no no place god none of your evil doings or unlocks prophecies for her so long anyway as i can preserve her from them how black the evening is gathering but god knows that it's the awful season all out for the harvest it is that it is that having given utterance to these sentiments she took up the tobacco-box which sarah had in such an accidental manner tumbled out of the wall and surveying it for some moments laid it hastily on the chest and clasping her hands exclaimed saviour of life it's the same oh merciful god it's true it's true the very same i seen with him that evening i know it by the broken hinge and the two letters the lord forgive me my sins for i see now that do what we may or hide it as we like god is above all saviour of life how will this end and what will i do or how am i to act but anyway i must hide this and put it out of his reach she accordingly went out and having ascertained that no person saw her thrust the box up under the thatch of the roof in such a way that it was impossible to suspect by any apparent disturbance of the roof that it was there after which she sat down with sensations of dread that were new to her and that mingled themselves as strongly with her affection as it was possible for a woman of a naturally firm and undaunted character to feel them chapter two the black prophet prophecies 
at a somewhat more advanced period of the same evening two men were on their way from the market town of Ballinafail towards the fertile portion of the country named Ogamoran, which lay in a southern direction from it. One of them was a farmer, of middling or rather struggling circumstances, as was evident from the traces of wear and tear that were visible upon a dress that had once been comfortable and decent, although now it bore the marks of careful though rather extensive repair. He was a thin, placid-looking man, with something, however, of a careworn expression in his features, unless when he smiled and then his face beamed with a look of kindness and goodwill that could not readily be forgotten. The other was a strongly built man, above the middle size, whose complexion and features were such as no one could look on with indifference. So strongly were they indicative of a twofold character, or, we should rather say, calculated to make a twofold impression. At one moment you might consider him handsome, and at another his countenance filled you with an impression of repugnance, if not of absolute aversion. So stern and inhuman were the characteristics which you read in it. His hair, beard, and eyebrows were an ebon black, as were his eyes. His features were hard and massive. His nose, which was somewhat hooked but too much pointed, seemed as if, while in a plastic state, it had been sloped by a trowel towards one side of his face, a circumstance which, while taken in connection with his black whiskers that ran to a point near his mouth, and piercing eyes that were too deeply and narrowly set, gave him, aided by his heavy eyebrows, an expression at once of great cruelty and extraordinary cunning. This man, while travelling in the same direction with the other, had suffered himself to be overtaken by him, in such a manner, however, that their coming in contact could not be attributed to any particular design on his part. "'Why, then, Donald Dew,' said the farmer, "'sure it's a sight for sore eyes to see you in this side of the country, and now that I do see you, how are you?' "'Just the old six and eight pence, Jerry, and how is the Sullivan blood in you, man alive? Good and old blood it is, in truth. How is the family?' why we can't hut what was i going to say replied his companion we can't complain ere she mishy why then god help us it's we that can complain donnel if there was any use in it but mavrone there isn't so all i can say is that we're just mixed middlin like the pratties in a harvest or hardly that same indeed since this woeful change has come on us "'Aye, aye,' replied the other, "'but if that change has come on you, "'you know it didn't come without warning to the country. "'There's a man livin' that foretold as much, "'that seen it comin', aye, "'ever since the Pope was made prisoner, "'for that was what brought Bonaparte's fate. "'That's now the cause of the downfall of everything upon him. "'And it was the hard fate for us.' "'As well as for himself,' replied Sullivan.' little he thought or little he cared for what he made us suffer for what he's makin us suffer still by the come-down that the prices have got well but he's sufferin himself more than any of us replied donnel however that was prophesied too it's read of in the old chronicles an eagle will be sick says st columkill but the bed of the sick eagle is not a tree but a rock and there he must suffer till the curse of the father is removed from him and then he'll get well and fly over the world footnote father this is the pope in consequence of bonaparte having imprisoned him End of footnote. is that in the prophecy donald it's St. Columban's words I'm speaking. Truth at any rate, replied Sullivan. I didn't care we had back the war prices again. After that, or 
that the dear rents were let down to meet the poor prices we have now. This woeful season, along with the low prices and the high rents, holds out a black and terrible look for the country, God help us. I returned the black prophet, for it was he, if you only knew it. Why was that, too prophesied? inquired Sullivan. Was it? No, but ask yourself, is it? Isn't the Almighty in his wrath, this moment proclaiming it through the heavens and the earth? Look about you and say what is it you see that does not foretell famine? Famine! Famine! Doesn't the dark wet day and the rain, rain, rain foretell it? Doesn't the rotten crops, the unhealthy air, and the green damp foretell it? Doesn't the sky without a sun, the heavy clouds, and the angry fire of the west foretell it? Isn't the earth a page of prophecy, and the sky a page of prophecy, where every man may read of famine, pestilence, and death? The earth is softened for the grave, and in the black clouds of heaven you may see the death hearses moving slowly along, funeral after funeral, funeral after funeral, and nothing to follow them but lamentation and woe by the widow and orphan, the fatherless, the motherless, and the childless, woe and lamentation, lamentation and woe. Donald Dew, like every prophecy man of his kind, a character in Ireland, by the way, that has nearly, if not altogether, disappeared, was provided with a set of prophetic declamations suited to particular occasions and circumstances, and these he recited in a voice of high and monotonous recitative that caused them to fall with a very impressive effect upon the minds and feeling of his audience. In addition to this, the very nature of his subject rendered a figurative style and suitable language necessary, a circumstance which, aided by a natural flow of words, and a felicitous illustration of imagery, for which indeed all prophecy men were remarkable, had something peculiarly fascinating and persuasive in the class of persons he was in the habit of addressing. The gifts of these men, besides, were exercised with such singular delight that the constant repetition of their oracular exhibitions by degrees created an involuntary impression on themselves that ultimately arose to a kind of wild and turbid enthusiasm, partaking at once of imposture and fanaticism. Many of them were, therefore, nearly as much the dupes of the delusions that proceeded from their own heated imaginations as the ignorant people who looked upon them as oracles, for we know that nothing at all events so much generates imposture as credulity. Indeed, Donnell, replied Sullivan, what you say is unfortunately too true. Everything we can look upon appears to have the mark of God's displeasure on it. But if we have death and sickness now, what will become of us this time twelve months when we'll feel this failure most? I have said it, replied the prophet, and if my tongue doesn't tell truth, the tongue that never tells a lie will. And what tongue is that? asked his companion. The tongue of the death-bell will tell it day after day to every parish in the land. However, we know that death's before us, and the grave, after all, is our only consolation. God help us, exclaimed Sullivan, if we hadn't better and brighter consolation than the grave. Only for the hopes in our divine Redeemer and his mercy, it's little consolation the grave could give us. But indeed, Donnell, as you say, everything about us is enough to sink the heart within one, and no hope at all of a change for the better. However, God is good, and if it's his will that we should suffer, it's our duty to submit to it. The prophet looked around him with a gloomy aspect, and, truth to say, the appearance of everything on which the eye could rest was such as gave unquestionable indications of widespread calamity to the country. The evening, which was now far advanced, 
had impressed on it a character of such dark and hopeless desolation as weighed down the heart with a feeling of cold and chilling gloom that was communicated by the dreary aspect of everything around the sky was obscured by a heavy canopy of low dull clouds that had about them none of the grandeur of a storm but lay overhead charged with those wintry deluges which we feel to be so unnatural and alarming in autumn whose bounty and beauty they equally disfigure and destroy the whole summer had been sunless and wet one in fact of ceaseless rain which fell day after day week after week and month after month until the sorrowful consciousness had arrived that any change for the better must now come too late and that nothing was certain but the terrible union of famine disease and death which was to follow the season owing to the causes specified was necessarily late and such of the crops as were ripe had a sickly and unthriving look that told of comparative failure while most of the fields which in our autumns would have been ripe and yellow were now covered with a thin backward crop so unnaturally green that all hope of maturity was out of the question low meadows were in a state of inundation and on alluvial soils the ravages of the floods were visible in layers of mud and gravel that were deposited over many of the prostrate cornfields the peat turf lay in oozy and neglected heaps for there had been no sun enough to dry it sufficiently for use so that the poor had want of fuel and cold to feel as well as want of food itself indeed the appearance of the country in consequence of this wetness in the firing was singularly dreary and depressing owing to the difficulty with which it burned or rather wasted away without light or heat the eye in addition to the sombre hue which the absence of the sun cast over all things was forced to dwell upon the long black masses of smoke which trailed slowly over the whole country or hung during the thick sweltering calms in broad columns that gave to the face of nature an aspect strikingly dark and disastrous when associated as it was with the destitution and the suffering of the great body of the people the general appearance of the crops was indeed deplorable in some parts the grain was beaten down by the rain in area situations it lay cut but unsaved and scattered over the fields awaiting an occasional glance of feeble sunshine and in other and richer soils whole fields deplorably lodged were green with the destructive exuberance of a second growth the season though wet was warm and it is unnecessary to say that the luxuriance of all weeds and unprofitable production was rank and strong while an unhealthy fermentation pervaded everything that was destined for food a brooding stillness too lay over all nature cheerfulness had disappeared even the groves and hedges were silent for the very birds had ceased to sing and the earth seemed as if it mourned for the approaching calamity as well as for that which had been already felt the whole country in fact was weltering and surging with the wet formed by the incessant overflow of rivers while the falling cataracts joined to a low monotonous hiss or what the scotch term soog poured their faint but dismal murmurs on the gloomy silence which otherwise prevailed around such was the aspect of the evening in question but as the men advanced a new element of desolation soon became visible the sun ere he sank among the dark western clouds shot out over this dim and miserable prospect a light so angry yet so ghastly that it gave to the whole earth a wild alarming and spectral hue like that seen in some feverish dream 
in this appearance there was great terror and sublimity for as it fell on the black shifting clouds the effect was made still more awful by the accidental resemblance which they bore to coffins hearses and funeral processions as observed by the prophecy man all of which seemed to have been lit up against the deepening shades of evening by some gigantic death-light that superadded its fearful omens to the gloomy scenes on which it fell the sun as he then appeared might not inaptly be compared to some great prophet who clothed with the majesty and terror of eye and angry god was commissioned to launch his denunciations against the iniquities of nations and to reveal to them as they lay under the shadow of his wrath the terrible calamities with which he was about to visit their transgressions the two men now walked on in silence for some time donald dew having not deemed it necessary to make any reply to the pious and becoming sentiments uttered by sullivan at length the latter spoke barrin what we all know donnel and that's the season and the sufferin that's in it is there no news stirrin at all is it true that old dick of the grange is drawn near to his last account not so bad as that but he's still complainin it's one day up and another down with him and of course his lease of life can't be long now well well responded sullivan it's not for us to pass judgment on our fellow-creatures but by all accounts he'll have a hard reckoning that's his own affair you know said donald dew but his son master richard or young dick as they call him will be an improvement upon the old stock as to that some says ay and some says no but i believe myself that he has like his father both good and bad in him for the old man if the maggot bit him or that he took the notion would do one a good turn and if he took a likin to you he'd go any length to sarve you but then you were never sure of him nor he didn't himself know this minute what he'd do the next that's true enough replied donald dew but livin' him to shift for himself i'm of opinion that you and i are likely to get wet jackets before we're much older ay did you see that lightnin god presarve us it was terrible and ay there it is the thunder god be about us thunder at this hour is very fearful i would give a trifle to be in my own little cabin and indeed i'm afeard that i won't be worth the washin when i get there if i can go back such a night as it's goin to be the last few years donnel has brought a grievous change upon me and mine replied sullivan the time was and it's not long since when i could give you a comfortable welcome as well as a willin one however thank god it hasn't come to such a hard pass with me yet that i haven't a roof and a bit to eat to offer you and so to such as it is you're heartily welcome home oh you mustn't talk of home this night blood you know it's thicker than water and if it was only on your wife nolly's account you should be welcome second and third cousins by the mother's side we are and that's pretty strong oh no don't talk of going home this night well replied the other i'm thankful to you jerry and indeed as the night's coming on so hard and stormy i'll accept your kind offer a mouthful of anything will do me and a dry state at your hearth till morning unfortunately as i said replied sullivan it's but poor and humble treatment i can give you but if it was better you should be just as welcome to it and what more can i say what more can you say indeed i know your good heart jerry and who doesn't dear me how it's pourin over there towards the south ah there it is again that thunder well thank goodness we haven't far to go at any rate and the shower hasn't come round this far yet in the meantime let us step out and try to escape it if we can 
let us cross the fields then said sullivan and get up home by the slang and then behind our garden to be sure the ground is a sad plash but then it will save a long twist round the road and as you say we may escape the rain yet both accordingly struck off the highway and took a short path across the fields while at every step the water spurted up out of the spongy soil so that they were soon wet nearly to their knees so thoroughly saturated was the ground with the rain which had incessantly fallen after toiling through plashy fields they at length went up at sullivan said by an old unfrequented footpath that ran behind his garden the back of which consisted of a thick elder hedge through which scarcely the heaviest rain could penetrate at one end of this garden through a small angle forming a cul-de-sac or point where the hedge was joined by one of white thorn ran the little obsolete pathway alluded to and as another angle brought them at once upon the spot we are describing it would so happen that if any one had been found there when they appeared it would be impossible to leave it if they wished to do so without directly meeting them there being no other mode of egress from it except by the footpath in question in that sheltered nook then our travellers found a young man about two or three and twenty holding the unresisting hand of a very beautiful and bashful-looking girl no more than nineteen between his from their position and the earnestness with which the young peasant addressed her there could be but little doubt as to the subject matter of their conversation if a bolt from the thunder which had been rolling a little back among the mountains and which was still faintly heard in the distance had fallen at the feet of the young persons in question it could not have filled them with more alarm than the appearance of sullivan and the prophet the girl who became pale and red by turns hung her head then covered her face with her hands and after a short and ineffectual struggle burst into tears exclaiming oh my god it is my father the youth for he seemed scarcely to have reached maturity after a hesitating glance at sullivan seemed at once to have determined the course of conduct he should pursue his eye assumed a bold and resolute look he held himself more erect and turning towards the girl without removing his gaze from her father he said in a loud and manly tone dear mave it is foolish to be frightened what have you done that ought to make you either ashamed or afeard if there's blame anywhere it's mine not yours and i'll bear it sullivan on discovering this stolen interview for such it was felt precisely as a man would feel who found himself unexpectedly within the dart of a rattlesnake with but one chance of safety in his favor and a thousand against him his whole frame literally shook the deadly depth of his resentment and in a voice which fully betrayed its vehemence he replied blame and shame and blame sin and sorrow there is and ought to rest upon her for this unnatural and cursed meeting blame surely and as i stand here to witness her shame i tell her there would not be a just god in heaven if she's not yet punished for holdin' this guilty discourse with the son of the man that has her uncle's blood my brother's blood on his hand of murder it's false replied the young fellow with kindling eye it's false from your teeth to your marrow i know my father's heart and his thought and i say that whoever charges him with the murder of your brother is a liar a false and damnable lie he checked himself ere he closed the sentence jerry sullivan said he in an altered voice i ask your pardon for the words it's but natural you should feel as you do but if it was any other man than yourself that brought the charge of blood against my father i would thramp upon him where he stands and maybe murder him as my poor brother was murdered dalton i see the love of blood in your eye replied sullivan bitterly why replied the other you have no proof that the man was murdered at all 
His body was never found, and no one can say what became of him. For all that anyone knows to the contrary, he may be alive still. Begone, sirrah, said Sullivan, a burst of impetuous resentment which he could not restrain. If I ever know you to open your lips to that daughter of mine, if the main creature can be my daughter, I'll make it to be the blackest deed but one that even at Alton did. And as for you, go in at once. I'll make you hear me by and by. Dalton looked at him once more with a kindling but a smiling eye. "'Speak what you like,' said he. "'I'll curb myself, only if you wish your daughter to go in, you had better leave the way and let her pass.' Mave, for such was her name, with trembling limbs, burning blushes, and palpitating heart, then passed from the shady angle where they stood. But ere she did, one quick and lightning glance was bestowed upon her lover which brief though it was he felt as a sufficient consolation for the enmity of her father the prophet had not yet spoken nor indeed had time been given him to do so had he been inclined he looked on however with surprise which soon assumed the appearance as well as the reality of some malignant satisfaction which he could not conceal he eyed Dalton with a grin of peculiar bitterness. Well, said he, it's the general opinion that if any one knows or can tell what the future may bring about, I can. And if my knowledge doesn't deceive me, Dalton, I think while you're before me that I'm looking at a man that was never born to be drowned at any rate. I prophesy that, die when you may, you'll live to see your own funeral. If you're wise, replied the young man, You'll not provoke me now. Jerry Sullivan may say what he wishes. He's safe, and he knows why. But I warn you, Donald Dew, to take no liberty with me. I'll not bear it. Truth, I don't blame Jerry Sullivan, rejoined the prophet. Of course no man would wish to have a son-in-law hanged. It's in the prophecy that you'll go to the surgeons yet. Did you foresee in your prophecies this morning that you'd get yourself well drubbed before night? asked Dalton, bristling up. No, said the other. My prophecy seen no one able to do it. You and your prophecy are liars, then, retorted the other. And in the doom you're kind enough to give me, don't be too sure but you meant yourself. There's more of murder and the gallows in your face than there is in mine. That's all I'll say, Donald. Anything else you'll get from me will be a blow, so take care of yourself. Let him alone, Donald, said Sullivan. It's not safe to meddle with one of his name. You don't know what harm he may do you. I'm not afeard of him, said the prophet with a sneer. He'll find himself a little mistaken if he tries his hand. It won't be for me you'll hang, my lad. The words were scarcely uttered when a terrific blow on the eye, struck with the rapidity of lightning, shot him to the earth, where he lay for about half a minute, apparently insensible. He then got up, and after shaking his head, as if to rid himself of a sense of confusion and stupor, looked at Dalton for some time. Well, said he, it's all over now, but the truth is, the fault was my own. I provoked him too much, and without any occasion. I'm sorry you struck me, Condy, for I was only joking all the time. I never had ill will against you, and in spite of what has happened, I haven't now. A feeling of generous regret, almost amounting to remorse, instantly touched Dalton's heart. He seized the hand of Donnell, and expressed his sorrow for the blow he had given him. My God, he explained, why did I strike you? But sure no one could have for a minute supposed that you weren't in earnest. Well, well, said the other, let it be a warning to both of us, to me in the first place, never to carry a joke too far, and to you never to allow your passion to get the better of you, afraid that you might give a blow in anger that you'd have cause to repent of all the days of your life. My eye and cheek is in a frightful state, but no matter, Condy, I forgive you, especially in the hope that you will mark my advice. 
Dalton once more asked his pardon and expressed his unqualified sorrow at what had occurred, after which he again shook hands with Dalton and departed. Sullivan felt surprised at this rencontre, especially at the nature of its singular termination. He seemed, however, to fall into a meditative and gloomy mood, and observed when Dalton had gone, "'If I ever had any doubt, Donnell, that my poor brother owed his death to a Dalton, I haven't it now.' "'I don't blame you much for saying so,' said Donnell. "'I'm sorry myself for what has happened, and especially as you were present. I'm afeard indeed that a man's life would be but little in that boy's hands under a fit of passion. I provoked him too much, though.' "'I think so,' said Sullivan. "'Indeed, to tell you the truth, I had as little notion that you were joking as he had. "'That's my dram one last night, at all events,' said Donnell. "'How is that?' asked Sullivan, as they approached the door. "'Why,' said he, "'I dreamed that I was looking for a hammer at your house, "'and I thought you hadn't one to give me. "'But your daughter Maeve came to me and said, "'Here's a hammer for you, Donnell, and take care of it, "'for it belongs to Condy Dalton. "'I thought I took it, and the first thing I found myself doing "'was driving a nail in what appeared to be my own coffin. "'The same drum would alarm me, but that I know the drums goes by contraries, as I've reason to think this will. No man understands these things better than yourself, Donnell, said Sullivan, but for my part, I think there's a dangerous kick in that boy that just left us, and I'm much mistaken, or the world will hear of it and know it yet. Well, well, said Donnell Dew, in a very Christian-like spirit, I fear you're right, Jerry, but still let us hope for the best. And as he spoke, they entered the house. End of section one.